Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Front and centre through the weekend then, the President's tariffs. The decision unexpectedly came on Thursday in the middle of talks. On Sunday, the President's senior trade advisor said the President does not want any nation excluded from these tariffs set to be imposed as early as this week. The President tweeting earlier this morning, we have large trade deficits with Mexico and Canada. NAFTA, which is under renegotiation right now, has been a bad deal for the United States of America. Massive relocation of companies and jobs. Tariffs on steel and aluminum will only come off if new and fair NAFTA agreement is signed. Joining me now here in New York City, I'm pleased to say, is Luigi Zingales. He is University of Chicago Booth School of Business professor. Professor Zingales, great to have you with us this morning. So to begin with, the question of whether we've seen, heard the starting shot of a trade war, have we? Um, I hope not. I think that uh, uh, we are used now to President Trump being a bit bombastic in his statements. And uh, I hope this is uh, a bit of propaganda to start the negotiation of NAFTA from uh, a stronger position. Um, and uh, they will not lead to a, a major uh, trade war. But, uh, you know, nobody knows. Professor, a lot of people questioning the approach of this administration. Let's just talk about whether there is a problem. Is there a problem in your mind that needs addressing? Uh, a problem in trade or a problem in the administration? A problem in trade. Um, I think that uh, uh, the United States is concerned about uh, no, not having fair trading with other partners. I think there are restrictions in other countries. I'm not so sure that the best way to go about doing that uh, is uh, uh, introducing tariffs or, or making the statements the president makes. Uh, I think those statements are more directed to the political world and to his supporters rather than to achieve the final goal. What is the best approach? I think the best approach is trying to work uh, with uh, various partners to make sure that uh, uh, there are conditions of fair trade on both sides uh, and uh, that uh, uh, American goods can uh, reach consumers in other countries uh, as easily as uh, uh, foreign goods reach our market. The international response so far is stank of hypocrisy for a lot of people. Europe trying to take the moral high ground on trade when there are significant barriers to entry into the European Union. At this point, why is doing more of the same going to turn out any differently than it already has over the last couple of decades? Um I think that uh, you're raising a good point, but I'm not so sure that uh, fighting the way uh, President Trump goes about fighting will deliver a better outcome. Well, I just wonder what is the right approach, because ultimately, Professor, so far all I've heard is more of the same. And I fail to see how more of the same actually generates a different result. In fact, for many people, there is a strong argument here that maybe the likes of the European Union needed a serious reality check in the way that it's behaved over the last few years, and that maybe China needs one too, that China can no longer continue to be a leech on the international training system, and that something needs to change. Um, th that's fair, but I'm also sure that uh, uh, by going after Canada, for example, because these tariffs uh, end up uh, penalizing particularly Canada, going after Canada 
without a, a real explanation. I don't think that uh, we are retaliating against uh, Canada's uh, uh, tariffs or anything like that yeah. uh, will lead to, to a better outcome. I think that uh, uh, having a more aggressive stance on trade justify right. based on what the other countries do, uh, I think that that would be a better approach. Just because of time here, I know John's got a ton of questions for you as well. The tweet this weekend where he wants to go after foreign automobiles, European automobiles, explain to our audience the trade of going after BMW if they're also located in South Greer, South, South Carolina uh, as well. I mean, 29651 is the zip code. How do you go after Germany and BMW cars if X percent of them are made in South Carolina? So one one interpretation, you want more cars to be made in South Carolina, and it says clearly the tariffs will not affect uh, the the cars produced in South yeah. Carolina, and so BMW will <laughs> increase its production here if you were to to shut off uh, or, or restrict uh, uh, imports. But uh, the experience we have seen in other countries is not that great. And so uh, Brazil um, has very high ties to the outside world. Uh, but uh, the biggest beneficiary of these tires is actually Fiat, uh, which is a foreign company located in Brazil. They have plants in Brazil, and they can sell their cars at a higher price and make higher profits as a result of restriction to trade. So restriction to trade end up uh, very often benefiting uh, actually foreign corporation. John, I want you to jump in here, but I'm glad to tell you, John, that we've already talked to Coach Singalis about Italy not oh, making thank the you World Cup <laughs> thank you. and the knock-on effect of that to the Italian election. What, what does Professor Zingales have to say about that? How do you tie up the World Cup and the Italian election, Professor? Actually, uh, I think that uh, the performance of Italy in the World Cup, both in the last two, where it was eliminated in the first round, and is in the coming one, where we're not even participating, uh, is an indication of the inefficiency of the training system and inefficiency in the uh, management selection system uh, in the Italian Soccer Federation, which reflects the inefficiency in selection of Italy at large. I yeah. think that uh, we need more meritocracy. We need a change in, in the, if you want, ruling elite. And uh, that's exactly what uh, these elections are trying to achieve. I'm not so sure that they will, but I think there is a deep dissatisfaction with the establishment. Um, and uh, and I think that uh, the, the vote yesterday uh, indicates that very clearly. I think there's a sense of complacency after having one of the best teams in the world for, for a couple of decades as well, Professor. And I wonder whether that applies to the markets this morning. Complacency that we've gotten used to an ECB that has taken care of everything for us and that we can wake up and have gridlock in the third largest economy in Europe and in the market you can barely tell. Um, I think that the market is pretty smart. They know that uh, votes are not that important, that the decisions are made in Frankfurt anyway. And so uh, nothing changes until uh, Mario Draghi is uh, chairman of the European Central Bank. Nothing changes. Later would be uh, interesting to see. When I look, Luigi, at where we are and just folks, the headlines of the last few hours, I want to go back and revisit why Steve Bannon is enjoying the Italian elections so much. And the tinge here is of a different kind of democratic process. Not fascism, that's media inflammatory, but what kind of stringent democracy is making Mr. Bannon so happy with Italian politics? So I think there is a clear tension between uh, 
globalization, democracy, and national sovereignty. And uh, I think that uh, this is coming to a clear uh, crash in Italy. Uh, Italy feels that uh, the the European Union is not taking care of uh, its problems, uh, starting with immigration. Uh, I heard earlier uh, the new Ministry of Health in, in Germany saying that uh, Europe should deal with the immigration problem. They should, but at the moment, uh, all the issues uh, are to the countries at the borders. It's like in the United States, we let uh, New Mexico deal with the problem of immigration and the rest of the country ignores it. And, uh, and I think that that generated a lot of resentment in Italy. And the second is what we were saying earlier with Jonathan. In uh, Basically, we are under supervision uh, by the uh, European Central Bank. So uh, the country feels that uh, it's not really a complete democracy because no matter what you vote in Rome, yeah. you're going to have the decision making <clears throat> Frankfurt. So I think that that, that is uh, a big uh, anti-European uh, feeling that expressed itself in the vote yesterday. And I guess that Steve Bannon is uh, uh, seeing that as a sign of the anti-globalization uh, uh, trend all over the world. Professor Luigi Zangalis of the University of Chicago Booth School. going to continue the conversation on trade as the tension continues to escalate between the United States and the rest of the world. For more insight, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Deborah Lear of the Polston Institute, the vice chair of the Polston Institute, joining us from New Orleans. Deborah, great to have you with us on the program. I asked this question at the top of the hour and I'll ask it of you, whether we've heard the first shot of potentially a trade war to come. Well, obviously, very interesting idea. I mean, looking at the issues with China, the tariffs actually don't have a significant impact. And what the Chinese have been doing um, is taking very much a wait-and-see attitude. They've been following the rhetoric, but waiting to see what the actual actions will be before deciding what their own retaliation or next steps will be. Do you anticipate that there will be action? Well, you know, it's hard to predict that with this president. Um, already this morning, he said that if there can be a NAFTA agreement, they will take the tariffs off. When it comes to China, China has already announced that they're planning to move forward with their own package of marketing opening measures. I'm sure in part they're hoping that that takes some of the, the wind out of the sails of the administration when it comes to trade action against them specifically. <clears throat> Ms. Lair, you have you have worked with Secretary Paulson for years, and here at the uh, Paulson Institute. But far more importantly than that, you have been in direct advisement through Goldman Sachs and other entities in advising corporations. We haven't really covered that the last forty-two business hours, forty-eight business hours. How would you expect corporations to adapt and adjust to presidential tweets? They can't ignore them, can they? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I was with a group of business leaders this past week who were talking about the fact that corporations are now taking on roles that they hadn't in the past. And climate change is a very good example of that, where they're taking on certain responsibilities that go beyond just being a, making a profit for their shareholders. And we seem to see them moving into that same space when it comes to policy and trade policy. 
certainly in the past, corporations have always taken a stand. I've worked with corporations for the past you know, 20 plus years in terms of what their advocacy has been in terms of U.S.-China relations and the economic relationship, but they really are taking a much greater role these days. Help me then with a company that, that you advise, and you know, it can be Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and other big fancy names. What does Tory Burch do with trade tariffs? Tory Burch isn't worried. This is a, for those of you not in the know, this is a clothing line that you have to buy for your house to keep closets full. Um, Deborah, Tory Burch doesn't care about steel or aluminum, but they got to care about import and export dynamics, don't they? Well, of course, and they care about the overall bilateral relationship with China, which is the most important in the world. And any negative backlash is going to have an impact on their business. Now, that said, certainly there are a number of U.S. businesses who are very unhappy about the fact that China has not opened its markets as quickly as we had expected them to do. We've not seen significant market opening in the past 10 years. So there is a frustration with that and a frustration with their level of intellectual property rights protection. Hopefully, we'll see those all increase over the next five years. Deborah, I'm still waiting for someone to tell me what is the best approach to deal with China to get them to drop these barriers to entry. What is it if it's not the one that mm -hmm. this administration is currently pursuing? Look, I, I was a trade negotiator in the 1990s under the Clinton administration, uh, and I think that it's a combination of two things. I think you have to be very clear in what it is that you want, and you have to be tough to take action if not. And we negotiated three 301 agreements very successfully. Um, two on intellectual property rights. Well, certainly there are still issues with it. What the agreements did was create the framework for protection, helping them establish first a world-class legal structure, which is what you need before you can then hold them to implementation and enforcement. So I think it has to be a combination of, one, being very clear in your demands, but two, being very tough if they don't follow through on their commitments. The conclusion so far, though, is that the approach of previous administrations didn't work. Are you saying it did? Well, I think it's been, you know, a combination of things. One, certainly we were able uh, in, the, in the 90s to make significant progress on trade and bring China into the World Trade Organization. I think that was a very important step, and I know that this administration has different views, but I think that if you look at the overall results, services exports from the United States have been up over a thousand percent, and U.S. goods exports have grown over 500 percent since China came in. One of the failings has been that of the WTO to keep up with today's modern world of trade and to be able to handle a mega economy like China. So I think it's much a failing of some of the international institutions as it is China's inability or lack of movement on opening up. If you look at what has happened, and, and there's obviously a lot of debate about Xi Jinping and him taking consolidating control, but one of his biggest challenges has been his inability to ensure that policy is implemented on a consistent basis in the provinces and in the municipalities. And that was Hu Jintao's challenge. And we saw no significant market opening under Hu Jintao. Now, part of it is that the Obama administration did not push hard on these issues. They were willing to trade concessions on the environment for movement on market access. But also it was 
Hu Jintao's inability to overcome some of the powerful forces who were opposing further competition from foreign firms. Well, Deborah, a lot of people might argue, actually, that the Chinese have been fantastic at just leveraging the rest of the world and their open markets, or perceivably um, much more open markets than the Chinese market itself, and just haven't dropped their own barriers to entry. And that actually, it's a very deliberate a very deliberate policy of the Chinese to do so. In fact, you mentioned the 90s. The 90s probably not a very good comparison because the Chinese weren't the force that they are now in the 1990s. And the here and now, quite clearly, the uh, the policies of the 90s just don't apply, do they? Well, I, I think you're absolutely right that China is a very different animal than it was in the 1990s, and it's much more powerful economically. But certainly the European Union and the United States have a lot of leverage with China to this day. And part of our leverage is their ability to access our own market. I felt very strongly that we should be having bilateral negotiations with the Chinese to push them for further market opening. Those did not take place under the Obama administration until the last two years when we started bilateral investment treaty negotiations. Those were progressing very well, but they left it too late and it ran into the politics of the presidential election. Explain, Deborah, and I was in Washington for the first meeting of Secretary Paulson with the Chinese and it was an historic moment. And you know, there was a lot of talking and give and take. For those listening who are skeptical about bilateral meetings getting anything done, explain their value. I think it's several things. One, it's clear that you need to establish personal relations when you're doing negotiations because it, it brings about a certain level of trust. And to build momentum towards addressing some of the larger, more complicated issues. Secretary Paulson will argue, of course, that the strategic economic dialogue was making very good progress until the financial crisis hit. And we moved away from pushing for reform of their financial sector, which was not the right time to be discussing that, to him actually having very good cooperation with his then counterpart, Vice Premier Wang Qishan, in taking steps that were very important to make sure that the financial, the global financial system did not crash. Deborah Lair, thank you so much for the Paulson Institute. Greatly, greatly appreciated uh, this morning. Right now, with a brilliant research note, is Shahab Jalanus of Credit Suisse. Shahab, congratulations to you and your team, not only on foreign exchange and on the VIX blow-up, but buried in your note are phenomenal charts about the dynamics of capital goods. Are capital goods imports into America a bad thing? Hi, Tom. Well, ultimately, imports... Uh, are necessary if you can't produce enough of the products that you need to grow your economy. Um, and if capital goods of a better quality can come from overseas, or if there's so, demand is so strong domestically that you need to import more from overseas than you produce locally, then there shouldn't really be a bad thing. Uh, so there's always obviously a political dimension yeah. to considering this issue. But in my view, no, that it's not a bad thing. To me, the heart of the matter, and I'd love to be corrected by Ann and Wall, is the word you just used, which is demand for goods. Isn't the boosted imports 
into America on a first-order basis, a question about our success and our demand for stuff? I think so. And I think the other dimension to consider here is if it's possible to spend more than you earn uh, or consume more than you produce, it's partly because foreigners are prepared to either lend you money or invest in your country. Uh, so the other side of the trade deficit is obviously a financial account surplus, which reflects a willingness <clears throat> by foreigners to invest in your country. And that's uh, very important uh, on many levels. But also, mm. when you look at the dollar, it's extremely important because <laughs> the biggest risk to the currency would be a sudden loss of um, confidence from overseas investors. We say good morning to all listening on Sirius, Sirius XM Channel 119 and digitally across steel and aluminum America. And we don't mean to belittle in any way the challenges of that industry. But all through the weekend reading, uh, Shab, was the idea that the president with good intentions is going to crush so many other industries. Does Credit Suisse buy that idea? Well, the issue really is this, is the, the direct GDP input from these industries, from steel, uh, aluminum, very, very small, well below 1%, obviously. Um, even as a percentage of imports, you're looking at less than 2% of total imports. The, the question, though, is this. is Firstly, clearly there's a direct role in terms of the uh, input of these products into other industries, and that's a key concern, and you're seeing that reflected in the prices of, of equities of, of consuming companies, for example. Um, but beyond that as well, I think one of the, the biggest issues here is what's the purpose of these tariffs? You know, on the one hand, you hear some advisors argue it's about national security. Yeah. Others seem to talk about China's production as a percentage of total steel production, which does seem to be unrelated to this issue. Others talk about NAFTA. Uh, and today we've had suggestions that the U.S. will uh, lean on these tariffs as one form of uh, negotiating new NAFTA arrangements. The, the point, though, is what's the purpose? And secondly, how is the policy being formed? Is it through a cohesive approach or is it just right. ad hoc based <clears throat> on emotion? And these are issues that will disturb investors until we get better answers, especially when we know that there could be retaliation right. at some point down the line. So there's a good foundation to the key discussion then is with Shahab Jalanus with Credit Suisse and Foreign Exchange then it's with the dollar. And I did see in the literature this weekend an ambiguity about dollar weak, dollar strong. I would respectfully suggest consensus is tilting dollar weak. Do I have that right? I think so. There's technical economic uh, arguments that could be made around the lines of um, a smaller trade deficit down the line, if it were to materialize, uh, being something that obviously reduces some of the dollar outflows from the import balance. On the other hand, you know, you do have a lot of money that flows to the foreign exchange markets that reflect the capital account, that reflect financial assets. Uh, and if you follow policies that globally are seen as destructive, and at the same time, you're a large beneficiary of global capital inflows, if those were to, to be hurt by following policies that are unpopular globally, then I think the dollar would suffer. And that's probably what we were, we're likely to see down the line. Well, within that, in suffering, you know, by the way, Shab, I'd love to get you on set sometime on television and radio with your colleague in crime, James Sweeney. I think that would be just a very smart uh, discussion to benefit Bloomberg worldwide. Uh, but, but Shab, the, the idea here is dollar dynamics and maybe what 
Secretary Mnuchin or President Trump would say is a weak dollar and a gradual trend is good for America. How do you respond to that? Well, again, it's, it's uh, a question of passing through the sectoral effects as well, as well as the political signals that you get. So clearly a, a weaker dollar would benefit exporting companies. On the other hand, if you are the U.S. government and you are looking to borrow large amounts of money overseas, which is going to be potentially essential given the spending plans uh, and the tax changes that have been made in the U.S., a weaker dollar may make things more difficult because foreigners may require higher real interest rates from you in order to... Can you have a weak dollar? And, this is critical. Can you have a weak dollar and higher interest rates? Yes. You, I mean, in the, in the end, that's my, what we'll probably end up with uh, in the sense that you need <clears> to make U.S. financial assets, particularly U.S. government debt, attractive to foreigners. And there's two different ways of doing that. One is to right. weaken the currency. The second is to offer them higher real interest rates. And we've seen this story in emerging markets over the years again and again. In countries like Britain right. and Turkey, this is typical. <clears throat> it's not typical of the U.S., certainly in the last 20 to 30 years. So this is a new dynamic the market will have to get used to. I, this, folks, what you just heard there, I've been railing. Pim Fox was so angry at me this week, and he said, Tom, you shut up about income and substitution affect microeconomics. Shahab, you just nailed the microeconomics, it seems to be devoid in the Trump administration, in that within any dynamic foundation, including interest rates, dollar, at the minimum within a Euclidean model, a Cartesian model, XY axis, at the minimum, there's two paths. There's the income effect and the substitution effect, and you can get this oddity of higher interest rates and weaker dollar, right? Oh, yes. And we've certainly had it in play since September, at least, we've already had six months of this. So, uh, you know, it's it's something that for sure can persist down the line. And particularly, yeah. you even have the, the a foundation for it in terms of theory, because at the end of the day, if you are going to push larger and larger government deficits, <clears throat> and you're trying to find foreigners to fund right. that, those deficits, then you have to offer them a better okay. deal. And that is a weaker dollar and higher real interest rates. Now, where this theory would be wrong, my theory would be if the economy generates such high tax revenues through growth, for example, right. that you don't end up needing foreign investment yep, in the stock market. But we're skeptical about yeah. that. Concept. Okay. Folks, what you just heard there, and, and I'm not going to attach Shab's name to this because, you know, I don't want to get him in trouble with his general counsel. But, Pim, I'm going to put out on Twitter the distinction between the Hicksian and Slutskian income substitution effects. And as you know, Pim, we have wonderful informed guests. I am so done with Shahab. Rich, lose him. Um, Shahab just killed it there with Credit Suisse. The book is Failure to Adjust. We had the honor of speaking with Edward Alden one, two, five, ten times, but never more important than now on trade tariffs, on our myths, on the fictions that we have. Ted, failure to adjust, you open it in 1961. You open it with the nostalgia of another America. I think everybody listening, whether they support or don't support the president, 
would suggest he is steeped in a nostalgia for another time and place. What's the president most get wrong about diving back to 1961? Well, we, we are a different economy. I mean, in 1961, almost 30% of American workers worked in manufacturing in one way or another. The rest of the world was still pretty flat on its back, so so we didn't have any yeah. real competitors. I mean, the labor unions in 1961 thought expanded trade was a great idea because we made everything better than anybody else. So so what's the problem? We just live in a very different world now, and I and I understand some of that nostalgia. I mean, it was a more equal world if you look at people's incomes. Uh, the 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 pace and the pressure were probably lower back then. I mean, I was a little kid, so. Okay. There was little pressure on me, but but I can understand the nostalgia. It's just not where we are it, anymore, and it, you've got to deal with reality. It was a closed economy coming off of two major world wars, and one in particular coming out of, you know, we just had on Ben Steele and the Marshall Plan and his magnificent new book on that. Book. Ted Alden, we're not in a closed economy anymore, are we? No, and, and we weren't exactly closed then. We just, as I say, made everything better. So we didn't face a lot of competition. Now we live in a truly global economy, and there are a lot of benefits from that, certainly a lot of benefits mm-hmm. for American consumers. There's yeah. been you know, mm-hmm. huge uh, growth of wealth around the world, people moving out of poverty. There's a lot of great things about it. It's okay, a different world. Over the it's weekend a- in the Washington Post, Pim Fox, David Lynch, his magnificent yes. article in Ashtabula, Ohio, it was iron ore... And then in 1890, they invented the arc welder type electric furnace for steel, and Nucor picked it up and ran with it. Mini mills. T- Ted Alden, is it too late? Is it too late too when late. it comes to? I mean, if we're going into a, a, a land of trade wars right now, does that signal that we really have uh, sort of walked away from any substantive response to globalization in the United States? I, I mean, I hope not because no, no. Hope is one thing. thing. I got that, but I mean, you know how the system. You know how the system yeah. works, and yeah, uh, I, now we're in a reactive phase. We are in a reactive phase, and I fear there could be a lot of damage done. I mean, the the world trading system is not that robust. It's fragile in a lot of ways, and I think we could see a lot of dangerous backsliding over the next couple of years. I mean, it's not going to solve the, any of the problems. And so we're going to have to deal with this one way or another. I just worry we're going to be digging out of an even deeper hole than the one we're in at the moment. Well, that's where I was going with this. How do you do that? I mean, what, what would you advise people who, let's say, have the ability to make decisions about where to either deploy their capital or where to educate their children? Uh, let me take the latter. I'm in the middle of a big project right now with Penny Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary, and John Engler, the former Michigan governor, on exactly that. I mean, our educational systems need to be far more closely aligned with working opportunities. You look at companies complaining about their inability to get the right sort of skilled workers. You look at the lack of, of opportunities for people with only high school education, when if we could just get them through community college, the doors open up. There are so many things that could be done on that front. And you look around the country, there are great state initiatives in places like Colorado and elsewhere. So there's a lot to be optimistic about, but but Washington's got to start waking up to some yeah. of this stuff the linkage instead of Pim, fighting these stupid wars. The linkage, the but, link, the linkage Pim Fox, on trade dynamics and children and education, that's the trade policy called tuition, where you export dollars and you import homework, like six hours of homework a week and that kind of 
That's how. Well, and you hope that it leads to some kind of critical thinking skills. But I mean, you mentioned Colorado, and and no, I mean specifically, uh, Ted Alden. What would you recommend to people to do who are trying to plan their future when they feel they have absolutely no control over the outcome? Fair question. I think you've got you've got to learn how to be adaptable in a modern economy, right? Which is you need to arm yourself with a set of skills that carry you through your life. You're you're going to have to relearn things uh, throughout your life, and that, and this is hard for people. And I'm I'm not arguing it. It is hard, and mm-hmm. and part of the responsibility of government is to help make those tools available for Americans, not handouts, but make it possible to get the education they need. Make sure that, you know, say they're working in the gig economy rather than working a full-time job, that they have some basic set of benefits, that they can look forward to a retirement, that if they're sick, they've got some kind of cover. There are ways to design our system to work in the fast-moving economy that we're part of. We're just not doing that as a country. Why don't we have what I'm going to call job credits almost back to the 60s for direct foreign, rather direct domestic investment to create domestic jobs? That, you know, it's almost like an LBJ kind of thing that Republicans could get their arms around. Why can't we do a job credit? I mean, I think we could do versions of that. I actually, I mean, there are aspects of the tax bill, quite honestly, that I like that that give some incentives for companies to invest here in the United States. The part of the Trump agenda that I've liked is is the the constant jawboning for companies to invest back here in the United States and take some ownership of of this economy, not just to see themselves as global citizens. So anything that pushes in that direction, I think, is very positive. But you don't need to do that by declaring a trade war with the rest of the world. Again, we got to work with our allies while we're looking after our own. Ted Alden, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Can't say enough, folks, about failure to adjust how America's got left behind. It's very important. It reads densely, but very informative with minimal mathematics. It's not like a heavy math lift as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.